0: Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast.
1: We're really privileged to have three brilliant panellists. Um, I want to introduce Daphne Todd OBE first. Um, Daphne was the first female president of the um, Royal Society of Portraiture from 1994 to 2000 so a trailblazing and um, a 2010 winner of the BP Portrait Prize. The work that resulted from that prize we're going to look at today um, which is of Dame Sally Davis and now um, Daphne lives on a small farm, I understand, in East Sussex, and paints portraits of everything, from trees and bricks and boilers to people. We're going to look at people today. Uh, She studied at the Slade as did James Lloyd. Nice segue. Um, there's quite a lot in common between Daphne and James, two of the most eminent portrait painters of their generation. James has won numerous awards for his portraits, the Onjati Prize in 2008, the BP Portrait Prize in 1997. Uh, Daphne has five portraits, the National Portrait Gallery. James is hot on her heels with three. We're going to look at um, his portrait of Dame Maggie Smith that you might have seen hanging there today as well. I think James could also have another award for the world's smallest studio. Not anymore, but when I met him, it was tiny, above Borough Market, buffeted by the trains. So um, we'll maybe talk about that a bit later too. Uh, last but no means least, Nigel Warburton, um, philosopher extraordinaire, writer of more books than I've probably had hot dinners. Um, one half of Philosophy Bites, which if you haven't heard it, um, uh, heard of it, of it uh, it produces philosophy podcasts of which 29 million have been downloaded, uh, which I think is quite impressive. I'm also in awe of his 53,000 Twitter followers. Uh, how how he does, I don't know, but he f- also found time to um, edit a book on Bill Brandt, the photographer. We're going to look at a work of his tonight. Apologies in advance, the quality of the image we've got is terrible. Um, I'm just flagging that up, otherwise, Nigel's going to get very worried. Uh, but he's now writing a book on the history of photography, so he's an ambitious man. I'm going to start with a quote by Nigel. He doesn't know about this. Um, he wrote a book on uh, on um, what is art, really, the art question. And after 133 pages, I read this book, after 133 pages, he says it's unanswerable. Sorry, that was a bit of a spoiler. Uh, but what he does say is that the whole point of the art question is that it's asked by people interested in works of art, not simply in the idea of art. So although we are going to go way beyond Hockney tonight, tonight, we're going to look at lots of questions about portraiture, we are going to root this talk very solidly in works of art. So you will have things to see throughout the throughout the evening. So tonight we are going to ask questions of portraiture. Um, I think when we, go to a, when we look at portraits, we often see the sitter and forget of the artist's voice shaping what the sitter looks like, but also you, the viewer, us, the viewer, when we look at portraits, we shape portraits too. This is why I'm going to ask you two questions, then get you to do some work, not for very long. The first one is, how many people have seen the Hockney exhibition? Can you raise your hand? Oh, pretty good uh yeah yeah oh look we're, we're all very diligent um the next one is who has sat for a portrait before oh it's about the same okay that's really great but there are quite a few of you who haven't sat for a portrait so to kind of get us in the mood for tonight i wanted you to imagine that you are in california the sun is shining on your back and you are walking into the hollywood hills and are going to sit for david hockney for a portrait so his house is phenomenal, massive colour, turquoise swimming pool, blue house, uh, pink outbuildings, yellow railings, you're absorbing all this colour, then you go in the studio, and the studio is white, it's the size of a tennis court, pretty big, and at the far end is a raised dais, much like the one we're on, two steps up, a blue pleated curtain behind you, and you're going to sit on a chair, not dissimilar to the one you're on now, if you've seen the exhibition, you've seen the 82 portraits of 82 people sitting in the same chair. So I want you to think how you would feel if you were going to sit for David Hockney. He painted mainly his friends, so maybe you know him, maybe you knew him. How would you feel? Would you be excited? Would you be uh, nervous? What would you be wearing? How would you choose the clothes that you wore? They would represent you in a portrait that would probably outlive you. So as we start talking about portraiture... And we have two great artists here who are going to talk about what it's like to paint people. I want you to imagine what it's like to sit for a portrait, to be scrutinized. And if we see you falling asleep, we'll start sketching you and show you at the end. No, I'm only joking. (laughs) I think I'll go to Nigel first with a very difficult question. It sounds simple, but it is difficult. Nigel, can you tell us what portraiture is?
0: Thank you. Um... Well, I can. I think it's actually a range of things, so it's not one thing. So it's a word, portraiture, portrait, but it's a family resemblance term. It's what we call a family resemblance term in philosophy. There's no common theme to all portraiture, except that it's a representation of a particular individual. But within that, there are so many different ways you can make a portrait. It might be a purely formal exercise, it might be an exercise in colour, It might be psychological observation. It might be an attempt to capture a moment in someone's life that somehow is representative of what they stand for, what in literature you call synecdoche, the part standing for the whole. Or it could be genuinely just portraying precisely the landscape of the face that you see in front of you. The the general idea of portraiture is that it would include the face, but some portraits are taken from behind, some portraits are... Of animals, some portraits are of trees, we've heard. Does it have
2: to be recognisable?
0: I don't think so. (laughs) I think there are plenty of photographic portraits which are unrecognisable, and the link through photography, through the causal relationship with the the person who's in front of the lens and the the caption and so on, tells you that it's that particular individual, even though you wouldn't necessarily be able to read that with your eyes.
2: I would disagree horribly with that, I'm afraid. I once painted someone called Dame Marilyn Strathern, a very um, eminent uh, anthropologist, and she had written a paper which she showed me before I painted her. And this paper sought to um, prove that um, some peoples in... Um, I'm not sure where, quite where it was, Papua New Guinea, um, who have a shrunken head um, culture, um, that the shrunken heads that they had kept... From and ki- from killing people in other tribes, those heads represented as portraits, not the people who had died, but the killer. And she made a very persuasive argument, being an um, being an, an academic, an argument that no doubt Nigel would appreciate more than I did. But I'm afraid if it's not a likeness, if it's not recognisably of the person that it that the title says it is, to me, that's not a portrait. And it just just starts to be semantics.
0: Well, there there is a sense in which you've narrowed the definition. So you say that's a particular genre of portraiture where you're recognising that this is um, a particular individual that we know. But there was a recent exhibition of Ice Age Art where there, there was a claim this is the earliest portrait we have in human existence. And it was just a portrait because it was clearly not a type, it was a particular individual who had some kind of deformity, so you know it's not a general type. So that was the, the claim this must be the first portrait. But that would be
2: recognizable.
0: To whom? Not to, to anyone, me.
2: Well, to, uh, yes, to anybody who you, you would you would say that, that was going to be recognizable to the people that knew that person.
0: Well I would say with photography, which is different from painting, the causal link is the crucial thing. So if I take a picture of somebody who looks like David Hockney, really looks like him, that wouldn't be a photographic portrait of David Hockney. It would be a for- portrait of a lookalike. And that's the problem with some of Julia Margaret Cameron's you know, staged um, idylls of the king, you know, portrait of, te- of, the, of, the, of King Arthur or mm. a portrait of Iago.
2: Mm. It just
0: looks like a portrait of an actor pretending to be I- Iago. Yes, but
2: it tells you what that person looked like, whether it was staged by somebody else or not. That's the
1: crucial thing I would have said. I think this is really interesting. I think we'll come back to it, but I'm going to move on just to to the first image that I want to talk about because this is how we can unpick this. This is a work of um, Dame Maggie Smith by James Lloyd. So I think this is quite interesting. This is obviously, I hope you can all see, is obviously a likeness. Um, So I think what would be good is to, to unpick a couple of the works by James and by Daphne and then maybe we can revisit that idea of portraiture because... I feel like I have a foot in both camps that I've written books on figurative painting that is distinctly not portraiture. And often that division people find difficult to to understand as well. So I think there's lots for us to get into, but I want to show you some work so you have an idea of James and Daphne's work, if if you don't already. Um, James, can I, if we go back to all these people are sitting for a portrait for Hockney. Yes. They're, They're feeling very emotional does an artist feel intrepid when you start out painting someone? And is it different if that someone is well-known before you meet them for the first time?
3: Yeah, well, obviously, um, I guess with someone like Maggie Smith, you, she comes with a reputation. And um, actually, with any, any sitter, you have a feeling that... I guess they're the same when they come to you about... They have a certain trepidation.
1: Yeah. Mm. So, how did this portrait come about?
3: Well, it was that's just, it was commissioned by the National Portrait Gallery, and I think well, that's it was a conversation between them and her. She she probably chose me.
1: And and when you when she you first met her was that for the first sitting? Was it as simple as that that she turned up at your studio?
3: No, there was a meeting at the gallery, and we had lunch, and a, you know a, a, with the you know, you know curators there.
1: And as an artist, are you already at work at that point? Are you analysing her as you sit and have lunch? Um,
3: yes, because you... Well, mainly she was saying things about what she wanted. In fact, like the way she's dressed, she'd already said that she didn't want to be... Um, unless I really wanted her to be... So she would just come as she is, So, which you can see she is. So mm.
1: And did you choose for her to go to your studio? Because I think this is the corner of your studio. Not the tiny studio where I first met you, but a slightly bigger studio, I think.
3: Um, I did, and I pretty much always do, which is um, which is part of, I think, becomes quite a bit bit of the portrait that I I appear in the. I quite I'm obviously very observational, but I appear in the portrait within my studio. The studio. So the is,
1: studio is you. Mm. It's you as the portrait painter.
3: Yeah, and they, they don't tend to mind that. Or I think at first they don't really think about it, actually. that's probably, They just say, oh, I don't care. But then um, <laughs> they probably don't realise that, that I'm going to take... The studio's going to become quite a big thing.
1: <laughs> Do you feel that, that um, by putting the studio in, you're being very transparent as what to what you're doing as an artist? You're not um, making it seem realistic. You're, you're showing... The person, but in a studio, in an artist studio. Yeah, I'm
3: showing them within the context of how they're being painted. I've made it her looks uh, slightly grand because she's got this sort of um, she's on this chair with a cloth, and that's a, 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 a raised platform to give give a sort of sense of uh, theatricality. <laughs> but um, that's, that's about as far as it's gone. But she she, she want, you know she wanted to wear those clothes but then the portraiture comes out of the uh, the pose you know she um that gives her a grandeur
0: so
1: she chose how she appeared to you and you responded to her pose and what she wore
3: well she was that's what she wore i think she wore even more uh dressed down clothes actually and i had to sort of draw the line <laughs> at, at, at uh, jeans so i said no no jeans um but uh Yeah, but in that because when when they come to the studio, then I um, I would do uh, drawings and take photographs. So in the photos, she might she probably did that pose with her hand, and then later on, I think. So so you
1: work? So the the first sitting is is exploratory in a way for you that you will do a small or sketch or a a sketch or take photographs. You're kind of trying to get to grips with the the physical person in front of you and mm. unlock. I mean, imagine an actress or an actor is the hardest subject because they're used to masking themselves. Or did she come as herself, did you feel? She
3: very much came as herself and was quite open in that, in that way.
1: Well, I love the way you say it's open, because I love this portrait. I went to look at it recently. It's in the National Portrait Gallery. You probably know it. Um, and then you sent me recently an, a, another portrait you've just done of her, which I want to show you which really feels, if you look back at that one, suddenly she seems really quite guarded and very posed. It feels like a portrait for the National Portrait Gallery. This feels really intimate, really like you've connected... I mean, not that the other one doesn't, but this one takes it to somewhere else. I wonder if you could tell us how this one came about.
3: Well, it is another commission portrait. It's for the Garrett Club, but I did, I did another portrait for them, and then with this one they said... Um, Bill Fever, who's, uh, Bill Packer, who's the art uh, chairman there, he said he wanted it a bit more lively. So he said he wanted it like a... Which, uh, I, you know, I was quite irritated at the time to <laughs> someone says something like that. And then, so he said, uh, more like a sketch. So I thought, well, OK. Um, but the only way I thought I could do that Because that's quite a lot of pressure, the idea that you're going to go and do a sketchy picture. Um, So I thought what I would do was, this time we did it at her house, so it's sort of on her territory. And what I would do is I would do two pictures um, in one go each. And so there's this one, and then there was another one. So it takes off the pressure, but they just get done. And then they would obviously be sketchy in the sense that that's what I could do in that time.
1: So this is a one-sitting portrait?
3: Yeah. And then I tidied it up back at the studio, like I put in hand. But you can see, like, with the black top, um, it's just sort of knocked in. Um, But the main reason, I think, was because she... I think when it was... As opposed to being at the studio, she just sat there, and she just... At some point, she she had her hand up, and at some point she was kind of drift off to sleep. And I, then she'd wake up and I would be there <laughs> painting her. Uh, but she, she didn't She didn't really you know, she just said here I am. Um, she, she was, a, in that sense she was a very good sitter.
1: Do you, you maybe can't, maybe it's like having a favourite child you can't answer this, but do you have a favourite out of those two? Or do they, op- they operate in different on different terms?
3: Well I think in terms of because that was done very quickly, as a painter, you think that's sort of like pure painting, so then you think, I think it's like the best thing I, I've, I've done, because it feels very pure. And, but then, they, you know, might prefer it more as a finished. People aren't necessarily so impressed by the, just the technique. I, you know, I feel that it's technically an achievement, but then it has to be a great image too.
1: <clears throat> I, think, I think it's both. Um, We are going to scoop through quite a bit because there's a lot to get through, but please, at the end, we're going to have lots of time for questions, so if you have questions about anything we talk about, anything about the Hockney Show, please do store them up to the end. Um, Yeah, sure.
0: It strikes me that both those paintings are about the presentation of self, about how people come across as much as revealing how they really are. There's a sense in which they... It's still a kind of mask that is being demonstrated. We're all doing it all the time. I'm very sympathetic to this... um, Psychologists of the 50s, Irving Goffman, social psychologist, sociologist, who talked about all human interaction as being a kind of drama. The world is a stage and there isn't really a true self. There's just a number of different roles that we play. And there is a kind of role playing of being painted. Even if you're trying to look natural, that is in itself a role. So Maggie Smith coming as just myself is another role. It's not you've suddenly taken away all the, the roles that she plays.
1: Yes, and I think in, that, in um, the first work I showed, when I saw that, I really loved it for its naturalism. I felt that we were seeing her, and, and until I saw the second one, I really thought that you'd, you know we were looking at the real her, and it was only when you start to study the pose, which is she's very much engaging with you, she's got a head cock, she's alert, she's presenting herself to the portrait painter, with this one, you feel like maybe because it's her house, or maybe because she's met you before, maybe because you have painted her before. That there's more intimacy. There's more. Um, she's maybe giving more to you. Maybe it's just your skill is capturing her in a sketch.
3: I think she was very much just uh, the the other one. Actually, I guess it's it's she's it's her uh, giving, but it's 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 me who's made it and. It's me who's made the decisions about how I want it to look. Really. Mm. The larger picture, because it was for the National Portrait Gallery, it's very much, especially when you're painting a, a famous person, it's the idea of you have to represent them in a, you know, it's a, there's a collective sense of her. Does,
2: does anything come into it? And, and, and this is lowering the tone enormously, but when it's a National Portrait Gallery, I get the feeling with some artists, not necessarily you, but I'm asking a question, um, that this is the National Portrait Gallery. <coughs> this is going to be here forever. So I'm going to do a big painting, um, or, or, you know, a, a, a more complex painting. Whereas, you know, I know what the Garrick was paying, for, for, or intending to pay for some of those portraits. there, that And it's a, probably less. Or even if it's not less, it's... Um,
3: it's less on less no, no, on show. Yes,
2: yes. Does that, does that affect how you set about doing a portrait?
3: Yeah, I, I did have, in a sense, the idea that I wanted to be ambitious with the first one and mm. say make it as big as I mm. could. Mm. And they said, at first, they, I think they were expecting something smaller. Um, but <laughs> I made it tall so that it's not taking up so much because they're not going to double hang. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, why not? Uh, I thought, yes. why not make as much of it a, it's an opportunity to, yes, and they are quite open. They could have had, they would have had, yes, a small head like that. But I wanted to do something more uh, grand.
1: Yes, I think it's fitting to um, to bring Daphne's work into the mix now. Um, this we're going to look at three works by Daphne. Hopefully, we we hoping one has been added at the last minute. So definitely two, hopefully three. Um, I I wanted to start with this one because this is Martin Gayford, who's a writer. Um, but has also been painted by Hockney in the exhibition upstairs. I've got an image just to, to flash in front of your eyes um, a bit later. He's also been painted by Freud. Um, and so he's, he's used to sitting and he's observant as a writer. I think he must have been a very interesting sitter. So I'd like to know from Daphne what he was like as a sitter
2: a bit doer in a way, I, I didn't really feel I connected with him terribly well. Um, I mean, knowing that he'd, p- he'd posed for, um, and written a book, um, The Man with the Blue Scarf, um, about posing for Freud, and I'm not sure that I really knew he I didn't, certainly didn't know the painting that, that Hockney had done of him, although I saw a reproduction of it in his house at a later stage, which I think just doesn't look like... Martin Gayford, I think mine looks far more like Martin Gayford, but I would <laughs> um, and I think the difference between between the the um, hockney and and mine uh, i mean there are many differences but I think i got taken with what he looked like, and the fact that every single time I looked at him, he looked different. He wasn't one of those sitters that can keep particularly still. Um, I mean, he did, he did try, but, um, but he hadn't got much sense. He's slightly shambolic. And so he didn't have much sense of sitting in the same... You know, he'd he himself down, and I was doing him in his own... I tend to go to the, the sitter in their own home. I quite like that. Because otherwise, if they come to my studio, I've got to feed them all day and things. and That's, <laughs> that's exhausting. Um, so, so driving to Cambridge, I live in Sussex. Um, getting there, having a sort of three-hour slot to paint him and, and, and then coming back you know, on, on numerous occasions to carry on the painting. There's actually a version of this that I think you've got before it got the hand, um, which in many ways as a painting, I think, is more beautiful and better um, I wanted the hand in, but because sometimes it was over his tummy and sometimes it was where it is now, sometimes it was hanging by his side, he did all sorts of things all the time. Um, And I couldn't... It took me a while to sort of think what I wanted. And then when I did, somehow the time had moved on and and we we, we weren't going to get much more time. And um, I'm not entirely sure that this is entirely satisfactory, but... What, I, what I hadn't
1: worked out when I was, oh sorry, what I when we were looking at these earlier was that this is the earlier version of the same painting, mm. because I thought this was a sketch um, for for this work, and I think it's interesting that you you sort of expressed dismay that you've you've worked onto the one that you, in a way you preferred. I mean, I think what I'm very interested in this because it's indicative of of, of your style in that actually as you work you add bits of canvas which is. Very unusual, I think. Um, So if you can see that the portrait head is there and then there are different canvases. Um, Are there four canvases in this, Daphne? Yes. Yeah. So how Um, does that come about? How do you decide, actually, I want to make the work bigger? Occasionally,
2: one has to think... Um, a commission restricts you to saying it's got to be this size or, or, or shape. For example, uh, there's another painting of mine here, here of, of, of Bishop Knowles, who was the um, former dean of um, St. Paul's, um, where they would not let me have a shape. And it's a shame because it would have been a better painting if it had, I think, if I'd it, if it been allowed to do it the way I want it to. What I do is I try to behave just like any other human being. I meet somebody, I don't really know them, and what one looks at first is, is the head. And of course at art school you're told that you, you mustn't just stick with the head, you've got to think of the whole design, you've got to and, and clearly Hockney draws something out and is thinking of the design. I don't want to be doing design, I'm not interested in design. The the painting makes demands upon you in a way. So if you know that it's going to be a three before canvas. Well, I actually work on wood, but uh, um, shape. Uh, you do automatically place things. Now, if you start with something smaller, um, you can do what you do as a human being. You can just dive into the head and actually you could spend forever just doing the head or just doing an ear or, or, or something. I mean, I remember starting with um, um, uh, Spike Milligan and, and starting with an eye and, and I was Days and days of sitting before I could get off that one eye it was so riveting there was so much to see in that eye socket and it it was that's a painting that's in the National Portrait Gallery um, and 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 uh, doesn't have different panels but is very much less finished in, in in farther areas because I couldn't get there what's amazing about someone like Hockney who's m- more of a designer and more joyous probably is that he makes a decision where he's going, Mm. and then sort of colors it in, Mm. colors it in very richly and and, and wonderfully, um, and has a design sense. I mean, these colors weren't there. You see, um, Martin Gavert said when he sat for that, and you can see in the photographs in the catalog, those colors weren't the colors in the background. And he's not bothering with the fact that it was a, um, you know, so this business of him working from observation very intently, he's not just doing that, I am. Yes, I, think, I mean, I think... And I think, I think James is too. That's Although James of... uses photographs, which I never do. So, yeah. So, you know, it's a funny thing, this idea of realism, and the idea that anything that looks realistic is somehow based on observation of what's in front of the artist. And it isn't, mm-hmm. in many respects. But what I think I'm doing when I'm painting is... <laughs> I, you know I can't do what Giacometti does and don't want to because because they end up grey and I am I love the colour of things and if you keep overpainting and overpainting, which is what happens when you're responding to the fact that everything is changing all the time you know people, people it's, the, the tiniest things and, and so that means that all the shapes that you're putting down are different all the time so there has to be means of dealing with that I haven't necessarily Found that. I mean, I hope I live long enough to have found a um, better way of dealing
3: with it. Are you saying that then like, you start with the head and then on one small board, and then you follow things around that you find interesting? So you might say, I find that corner interesting, the way, you know, where his hand is against the fireplace, and follow those interesting parts, in, and in a sense, have a sort of anti composition.
2: Yes, I, th- I think actually there are two. Th- I I didn't set out with a scheme of doing this at all. um, The first time I did something on several panels was simply because I had an impossible sitter, um, the cesspit cleaner, which was something I painted for um, People's Portraits, um, for the Royal Society Portrait Painters' Millennial Show, uh, which is now at at Girton. Um, But this cesspit cleaner absolutely had no idea about art, artists, no idea. He was an outdoor man, working man, um, and I wanted to paint him in front of his, um, uh, his tanker. And he came to my studio. We have a small farm. He came to my studio and could bring his tanker into the yard in front of my studio. Um, but he couldn't keep still. And so, and of course the sun came in and went out and uh, uh, went count clouds, all sorts of things, the wind blew, all sorts of things. It was impossible. So I took him into the studio and I thought oh, I'd just do a little head. And he got a little bit better at, at sitting and he had these wonderful orange um, overalls and and, and, and anyway gradually I thought if I use the information I've got in the painting I've done of the head in the studio but take him outside and redo that, have him in the same position from my eye but outside and repaint the colours so that they're outdoor colours, outdoor light, I could get the body in and it was a matter of you know, when something became possible, I, I could put it in, and so that became a multiple. Now, I didn't do any more of this for quite a while until I, I think it was I actually painting Bill Packer, and I did. Um, I started with a small head because he was an art critic, and I was frightened of painting him, <laughs> and so I started on a small bit of wood. But the bulk of him, you know, I became aware of the bulk of him, mm. so I needed m- more. And in subsequent paintings, you know it 's really like what you know one does with the audience like you, you, you see someone 's eyes, you see their glasses glinting, you know, and eventually you realize that they 're wearing a, a, a tweed jacket, and, and they you know, 've got not particularly shiny shoes, you know and eventually you start noticing the other.
1: Things, and that's so it's a way of allowing you to move with that, where the portrait goes. The portrait's it. kind of organic.
2: That's it. That you the, don't
1: the, have that fixed the, design the person, of hot
2: The person is the most important thing, and it's mm-hmm. what comes over from them and sometimes their environment um, that um, drives the painting and makes the painting the shape it is and the size it is.
0: I'm really intrigued because lots of the people you paint, you won't know very well. So... If you're a writer and you're trying to write a psychological portrait, as it were, a biography, you have to kind of immerse yourself in the details of somebody's life. But if you're just dealing with appearances and a few casual meetings, how can you represent what they are to the world and then be the person responsible for their image as it lasts after their death in the National (laughs) Portrait Gallery? Well, you
2: said something, Nigel, um, earlier um, about... and, And people often use this phrase just appearances (laughs) and it's as though simply mapping the the appearance of a face the outer surfaces of a face is somehow not really very worthy that is all i'm doing it's all i'm doing and it's impossible
0: i'm not saying it's not worthy it may be beautiful design it may be accurate of um what somebody looks like but in terms of psychology, it depends on the individual. And there's a, a great case with um, um, uh, Alan Ramsey's portraits of David Hume, the great philosopher David Hume. Very subtle mind and absolute genius, not just in philosophy, in history and economics. Amazing, subtle writer. But he looked like a big, fat idiot. <laughs> I mean, and his contemporaries said the same. He didn't look like a philosopher at all. Uh, Rousseau, his contemporary, Alan Ramsay also painted, looked really like an intense philosopher. Now, you paint Hume as he appears, and he looks... He's you know, just sitting there... Well,
2: that's interesting, isn't
0: it? It is interesting. Do you think then there's a responsibility? To somebody who doesn't know about him, reading the psychology of the, the individual there, you get it completely wrong, as most of his contemporaries would have done if they just met him in the street, not knowing who he was.
1: But do you think then that, um, that an artist has a responsibility beyond appearances? Because then we get into a thorny area of possibly propaganda. If we, make, if we slim him down and make him look more t- intelligent, then surely we're pandering to, to something that isn't um, accurate visually, although may express his great intellect inside.
0: Well, artists do that all the time. They look for other... Um, additions to imply things about their sitter don't they so in the Alan Ramsey case with Rousseau Rus- with he had him um, posed actually in a kind of Rembrandtian light implying stuff about him being a self-portraitist and um, he was writing his confessions at that time one of the first biographies with Hume he had his hand resting on Tacitus. Volumes of Tacitus implying, you know, this is Hume, the great historian, in the great, because he was known in his lifetime uh, principally as a historian, like Tacitus. So that was done not through his face, but through the accoutrements.
1: I think this is quite a good time to move on to another portrait by Daphne, because this is actually something you do, is not just look at the face or the body, but you are very much interested in the room I mean unlike James who makes who, who who brings the sitter to his studio and talks about as we'll see in later works talks about what it is to be a portrait artist that the, the, the um, using mirrors or reflections or the studio what um, Daphne does is often if I get the next image is often show you the objects around a person beautifully observed so here we have this is um dame sally davis who's the chief medical officer this is in her office in whitehall i think what I love is that, you know, she has to practice what she preached... ...so her trainers are kicked under the sofa trying to get fit, keep fit. She's got a bag of sweets next to her on the uh, sofa. Not
2: sweets, no. Oh, are they? Fresh vegetables. <laughs> oh,
1: really? Oh, do you know, when I looked at it, I thought, oh, I love that. I looked at it really closely. I thought they were dolly mixtures. There you go. Fresh vegetables. I bet there are sweets in the briefcase. Uh, and behind, you can see her team working hard in the, uh, in the office behind. So I, I, I think, and obviously we're going to come and talk about the eyes... But I think I love the fact there's all these little details that, that, that <coughs> weave into telling us about the portrait. Can you tell me what she was like as a sitter and why she has so many eyes in this picture?
2: <laughs> what was she like as a sitter? Well, I first went to her home. Um, she's the first woman medical officer. That was why we were put together, I think. And also um, the National Portrait Gallery had found it very difficult when um, it was my turn to win the BP prize which I won with the painting of my dead mother. It's quite difficult to find a sitter that wanted to follow on from that. Um, So it didn't do my career much good in terms of earning money from portraits for a while. However, um, Dame Sally is a medical lady and um, had seen a lot of death um, and um, was moved by that that painting and and was prepared to sit. So that was the first thing which uh, warmed me to her. Um, But I went to her home initially, which she has a lovely home um, with with a lovely view out um, into woodland. Um, But I'd also been to to her office in in, in Whitehall, and what struck me there was this sort of hive of activity going on behind her and and the chandeliers and... um, um, up above the, the workers, that you can just about see a chandelier, I, I think, and the work, there's another another couple in, in her own uh, part of the um, office complex. Um, she's a very forceful, very dramatic, very, oh, not dramatic, um, very um, energetic woman. Um, so um, when I'd gone up to the recce to her home, she put her trainers on and, and you know I really had to trot behind her. To... To get to the bus stop, so we both caught the bus down to, down to Whitehall and to, to see what that was going to be like. Um, she, she was a good sitter in as much as she knew I wasn't going to um, flatter her, and um, she let me do what I wanted. We moved the furniture around a little bit so that I could get that view there. Initially, um, because she, I think she quite wanted to have the, the chandelier in, and um, the chandelier that above her head, of course, looked very much bigger and grander. Um, and she was prepared to sit on a table, um, a sort of coffee table in, in the office, um, on a chair, um, to get into a position where I could see both the, the chandelier and and, and her. Um, and she kicked her legs into the air, you know, and I thought, gosh, she's got good legs, you know, because she's only a year younger than me. And uh, we're not the same generation, incidentally, as you say. I've got grandchildren. And, um, James has small You're both children.
1: painting now. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but... Um, Um, so I I really simply decided to try try you know practicality has always come into it so actually you know although it was in my head to have her kicking her legs and and being up in front of this chandelier I I thought that's just going to look mad in the end you know and and in the end I keep coming back to looking at their faces you know that they they, you make your own face I think that's the point so that this mapping of what someone's face is like their face is the result of either them trying to hide what they're they're feeling and and thinking, or it's the fact that they let it all hang out. Um, It's a fact whether they're health-conscious or not. All of those things are there.
0: In a relationship with you, but it might be completely different in a relationship with somebody else. I can only
2: paint my experience. Mm. So that's
0: really interesting, though, because it's a a record of an interaction as well as it's not an objective portrait of how this person is. To everyone
1: I think that now is something the National Portrait Gallery takes on board I remember when I was a young critic going there I used to bang on to Sandy Nenn, who was the director that he would own the captions only had the sitters details the artists were it completely absent just the name and you know it, exactly that point is that the a portrait is a relationship primarily between the sitter and the artist but also between us the viewer without us it's not kind of um, we, we interact, it's a triangle, but the, the, the original magic is between the artist and the sitter.
0: And the commissioner. And yeah. the patron, <laughs>
1: and the life it has after yeah. death, if you think of the portraits of Elizabeth I. Um, or actually a portrait that I thought we would look at. Very briefly, this is one that Nigel was keen for us to include, and I'm keen to include it too, and maybe for different reasons, but let, Nigel can have first dibs.
0: Well, I love this portrait in in the Sainsbury Wing of the the National Gallery. I mean I used to go and look at it, partly because it's got this photographic realism, so you feel you're engaging with a real person. So it does have that sense that presumably his contemporaries recognize this doge of Venice. He's just been appointed to, to Doge. And he's a very powerful person. He's got the kind of introversion, the look it's not as extreme as in the Maggie Smith second portrait, but he's certainly not um, looking at the, the portraitist and engaging his th- he's thinking. So he looks like an intelligent, um, strong person. But then there's all, there are all these other aspects to it, which I wasn't aware of. The, the, I always found the um, strange shells on his coat bizarre, but they're apparently elaborate buttons that mm. were part of the official dress. So there's this kind of symbolic, this is his, he's the doge, this is what you wear. The silk top, you know, amazing... Um, 1500 to be wearing something like that, which is so valuable. But he's in Venice, which is the centre of trade. That must be all implied. Um, but I found the stiffness of it odd. And I was wondering whether it was the clothes making him look stiff, because obviously Bellini's a brilliant artist. He could have portrayed him slightly more relaxed. And this is the most powerful person in Venice. Why is he looking intimidated by the artist? And I realised reading about this on the website of the National Gallery, that this is actually in a tradition of painting that imitates Roman sculpture. So this is a bust. This is like telling you about the link back to ancient Rome. This is part of the Renaissance. This is part of the kind of refinding of, of the Roman um, precedence of the great um, uh, empire. So, so it's actually implying um, a certain kind of portraiture. There's, there's a number of different layers of this. It, so it's quite fascinating. And then you've got, the, the you don't have the name of the the sitter, you have Bellini has pasted his name on a bit of paper you know, showing his trompe lawyer skills at the front as if it's really stuck on the front of the picture. And that's um, what I love. I on mean, a kind that's of shelf, what... so it's like almost a joke from the artist. So you say, so, hey, I'm even bigger than the, the doge. <laughs>
1: I think it's it, It's quite interesting in terms of James's work where he reveals the methods of portraiture as he paints, that in this you, you get someone painting the artifice even with the most beautiful portrait. And if you haven't seen it, I urge you to go and see it. But you get a kind of frame to the work I mean, maybe 300 years, 350 years before artists were doing this, as we would say, consciously with modernism or um, in the 19th century, at least, that what you get here is is framing the portrait.
0: And with Mantegna, you know, the same gallery, you'll see them imitating marble. So there's a kind of trompe l'oeil marble. It's much more obvious, but this is like implied that there's a marble doge there as well. It is on a <laughs> shelf almost. Uh.
1: I think I'm interested. Oh, sorry, James, do you want to?
0: I, w- I was just going to say, I think probably the... the... Yeah, the, the little
3: signature is probably him... It's like his calling card, and I guess he's showing off his skill a little bit more. But I wanted to say... I, also, I don't think he just looked intimidated, actually. It was quite intimidating. But I wanted to say, I think part of the strength, actually, is what you were saying earlier, Daphne, about it, its design, I think, this... Mm. Uh, um, it, with that hat, it's very much... is a, a very concrete uh, construction.
0: And... Um, I mean, even to the background, the, the blue—that is presumably ultramarine, which had been a very expensive pigment. So there's an implied value to the image, the physical thing, the image there—that's the design built in that the contemporaries would have known that, or lapis lazuli, whatever it was used to make the um, to make that blue. The blue was the most expensive pigment. So, so everything
1: we're talking about is that this image is a very controlled image because it has a message, a clear message to convey, and is still conveying this. The, this important leader in venice that is conveying this message i'm um, going to move on to this one this is probably the most important person to paint in this country um a living I dispute our, that. our living <laughs> well let will uh, our living monarch um and james this is james's portrait i think it's interesting how one approaches someone who the work is not just a work of your mom or your or your um, children, that we'll come on to shortly, but you are painting an image that definitely has longevity. How is that intimidating as an artist, this weight of history? Do you feel... I mean, I, from my understanding, the Queen is fairly liberal in how she's painted. I think Justin I think, Mortimer well, decapitated yeah. her, didn't he, at some point? Um, but, yes, how did you find her? Uh, she might,
3: I don't know about uh, liberal. I think probably she's done it so often that she's not probably that... Um, you know, that interested in, <laughs> in, uh, in, in them. Um, and also it's done very, I think probably in tip, it's done very much on her terms that you, you have to do it within a, you know, it's, it, it's a different sort of thing, uh, the way you have to go about it and you have to accept all the, um, that you haven't got a lot of time, mainly, um, but- How long did you have? You have, the, it's always the same thing and always in the same room, I know from other portraits. It's three one-hour sittings. And, yeah. Um.
1: But is that is that quite interesting? A bit like, if we can link it into the Hockney exhibition, he had the same setting, and it was one person looking at different people with varying degrees of success, I think. If you look at those portraits, some, are I think, are really good, some perhaps not so good, but they were all painted in a, a very rigid environment. From what you're saying, you all got three one-hour settings... Sittings. Well, I think everyone does the same thing. In the so that's same what she, room. She to,
3: and then they think that's... Like they said, oh, I will come in at the end, the, the guy who's the you know, the organiser, and if you need a little bit more, maybe you'll get it. But it's like, you get 15 minutes and think, well, it's neither here nor there.
1: But it's but interesting, because f- all the portraits that are done by different artists are all very different.
3: Well, I think the main thing is, you accept that, you think, well, I've gone and do this, I'm painting a, a portrait of the Queen, and... It does come with what Nigel was saying about i think about the idea of the responsibility of their representation normally like, this is for a university, and they they will tell you they, they they gave me free rein to what to do they they suggested what she would dress uh, what, what she would wear, but there's a responsibility about how it's received and how it 's received within the that the college with this picture then you have a's it's, it's different in the sense that there's a she's a very well known <laughs> Person and her uh, image. So there's a, what I was saying before about a sort of collective sense of what that person looks like. I mean, she's an extreme, extreme example of. The, we know we we see her every day. Uh, you know your money and...
1: But it's quite this one. I think is a really lovely portrait. I think it's actually one of my probably my favourite portrait of the Queen. Um, if we look, if you compare her and how you positioned her in the frame to Daphne's picture that I have next this man intimidates us in this canvas and this is the one I think you were talking about where you had to do a single canvas Yes. so with the queen we see her looking not normal but like one of us almost Mm -hmm. and the background is very beautiful vulnerable he's he's dominating your composition was that conscious Daphne that you wanted to make him look larger than life because he's quite a big guy he is a big guy yes
2: um He'd also um, had a bad time. I don't know if you remember the sort of occupation outside um, St Paul's Cathedral. Um, He was the dean, you know, dream job. Um, And the internal politics um, of how to deal with these protesters who who were defecating and what have you outside the the cathedral and stopping people coming in and um, generally being an absolute nuisance... Um, there was a faction within the uh, cathedral that um, felt everyone should have open arms to these people because they were human beings and fellow human beings. And um, Bishop Knowles, who was made a bishop afterwards, I think, um, who was the dean, um, <laughs> decided they should be, you know that the law should be upheld. And the law said that they were not allowed to camp there and do what they were doing, and, and that they should be moved on. So there was a difference of opinion, and he felt he should resign over over it. And um, I think he was a big man, both physically, and um, and and in his humanity actually, and and in what he felt was right, the right thing to do. Um, so he certainly filled my my visual field. <laughs> uh, I, I, i suppose i was affected by the, the the place i painted him was it was a very very dark room um the light was was um very fitful and and, and oh and when i'd started painting it um which was down near westminster um he'd gone to to, to, to do a deal with a charity down there um uh, Not only were the trees outside, and when I'd first seen him, there were no leaves on the trees, but the leaves came out, but um, builders moved in, and they put, first of all, scaffolding up, and then they put that blue stuff up that they put on top of the scaffolding. So every time I had a sitting, it got darker and darker and darker. (laughs) Um, I don't know if that affected it or not, really. I think I had to adjust the painting quite a bit when I got it back into my own studio and could actually see what I'd done.
0: (laughs) Nigel. It strikes me that most of the pictures we've been looking at, are typical portraits, they're of powerful, famous people, or rich people, or people who happen to know artists. And the majority of the world doesn't get their portrait made by painters who are skillful because it's expensive, you have to have a personal connection to do it, or a commission. And it seems to me a very political thing. So when you fill a national gallery, you fill a gallery of portraiture it's the rich and the powerful or the self-important and the important. Um, we need to acknowledge that. Um, well,
1: unless you have a commission like Daphne of the cesspit cleaner. Yeah. Who, well, well that that obviously was a so great I, but sitter But we didn't see that image, her, but... interestingly.
0: No, no. And, and there was a power relationship there because Daphne is used to dealing with people who sit still mm. and she tries to get the guy to sit still and she, she couldn't get him to sit still and then he lost the opportunity of the best portrait he could have had. So it's really interesting. Well, no, because I found a way of doing it, and so the
2: painting, and and the the point you make about the fact that the people who make this country what it is, the workers, don't get painted enough. Um, The Royal Society of Portrait Painters, during the time I was president, um, we came up with the idea of painting people's portraits. So we all volunteered, the cesspit man and various other people, we all volunteered to paint these people for free and that collection, as I say, is now at Girton College, Cambridge, where it's open to the public every afternoon. So, so, and but usually and I in a think Cambridge some... college,
0: um, the pe- person who gets painted is the master or the mistress mm. or whatever. Mm. Mistress of Girton will get painted, and, and you get this. Yes, Powerful true. image above the, the high table. So, as, changing our,
1: as our final image, just before we open to questions, we have lots more images, but time is racing ahead of us. Um, I just thought it might be interesting as a kind of riposte to that, which is very true. I mean, these are the children, they are children that you won't know, but they are James's children. So, they perhaps not surprisingly are being painted by dad. Um, I think it's interesting as you said, for the people who don't sit still, these are probably two prime examples, right, James? <laughs> but I wanted to include this as as how you construct uh, an image and actually just to raise self-portraiture, which we sadly haven't had much time to talk about, how you've painted yourself into this image.
3: Uh, yes. Well, uh, yeah, it, it, I painted it as a self-portrait, um, but... With my obviously, I have my two daughters, and with them, as you said before, I like to do things with mirrors to sort of extend the space. But also, and I had this idea of also to make the painting seem more real. The idea of seeing someone from the back and then seeing someone within the space. Um, But then they also um, the sense of me as the person who's not really there too. I guess as a a father, slightly receding in in the sense of your children are coming forward and you're... You know, I'm the, I'm the one in the mirror, I'm not the one... I'm, ma- I'm the one who's made, making the painting and uh, who made them, but I'm also there on a stage and I push them forward.
1: Do you look at other portraits when you consider this? I mean, I, I put an image in just because it mm. reminds me of this, Velasquez's mm. Las Meninas, where you have that play of image, artist, mirrors, I went, we're not uh, your daughters are not the monarchy in Spain, but the, it's it's similar the staging that Velázquez used. Do you both look at the history of portraiture? It's very rich but very powerful presence. I imagine.
3: Yeah, I I, I knew when I was setting up that picture, um, the idea of me in in the mirror, me painting the portrait. It, it became obvious that, that was there was a sense of Las Meninas because. Um, mm. and she's holding this little toy. Yeah, but, yeah, they don't have their maid their, their maidservants.
0: And, <laughs> and They're out of the picture, are they? Yeah.
1: <laughs> Daphne, have you ever painted yourself? Do you do it regularly?
2: Uh, no, I'm not attracted to paint, but I have done it when asked. Uh, the National Portrait Gallery asked me to do a self-portrait when they did um, a show of women's self-portraits, um, and I hadn't done one, so I did one in a magnifying mirror, um, And that was rather like painting a a landscape, really, because um, uh, I did it in my studio, but it was winter, and so I had some electric light from one side, and I the first time at the time notice all these furrows and it really was you know sort of like painting um, like painting a furrowed field Um, and I really just got interested in joining up these lines um, and then noticing the odd sort of bristle appearing and um, and then you know one one of the um, times I was painting myself you know there was a drip at the end of my nose my studio is quite cold um, so I put the, I put it in, of course you know, and then other people sort of said but that's so cruel, you've been so cruel you d- to yourself, you don't look like that but I was just interested in the shapes, colours and, and that's what you were, came out you were
1: literally painting what you saw yeah, exactly. and you were not that's being it. generous to yourself because I always think with self-portraiture the artist is it's the only way you get to know exactly what's inside as well as what's outside so you may have a great relationship with Maggie Smith or I hear that At one point, Daphne painted a portrait and actually painted horns on the person before she painted them out. Uh, So obviously, there's good sitters and bad sitters. uh, But when you're painting yourself, you're painting a different... You know, you really do know what's inside, so you can express it. But you're still resolute. You paint what's on the outside. I do, yes. Paint wholeheartedly. But Um, but but the horns, you know, keeps people in their place. I wanted just to give Nigel... (laughs) I wanted to give Nigel the last word on self-portraiture because then we will open it up to uh, questions and grill Daphne as to who this person Just was. Just very
0: quickly on this portrait, self-portrait by Rembrandt that's in Kenwood House. Um, made absolutely amazing portrait. And it, does, it was painted in a mirror, obviously, a big mirror. And um, if you look at Rembrandt's self-portraits, there is this awkward moment where the left-right switches because if he's painting himself as an artist, he doesn't want to paint himself as left-handed. But actually, that's how he would appear if you have the mirror image. So the hands and the palette are always really bad as painting, compared with the rest of the image. Um, when there was a, a major exhibition at the Sainsbury Wing again of, of Rembrandt, a lot of these art historians came out of the woodwork and said, "Well, of course, these aren't really psychological self-observations. These are what they call tronies. They're sort of um, there a tradition of painting these genre pictures of." Um, types and and the artist has himself in this case available, so he just paints his type, and they're not really the things that we think they are. But I just think the human eye can tell you this is somebody scrutinising himself, and in the pattern of um, himself ageing through the seventy or so portraits that exist, we have this most remarkable example of a human being observing himself growing older. And I think it, you know this is a major triumph of portraiture for me. Um, and and it's a, it works at the level of brushstroke as well as the, the level of psychological observations. That combines, you know, when you get up close, you're just sort of amazing. Out of nothing, he sort of creates a very recognisable face, just a few brushstrokes, and suddenly you step back. And it's a person looking at you, and it's or looking at himself. And it, it's absolutely fascinating. It's also, philosophically, at the moment, he was a contemporary of Descartes. In um, René Descartes who is, begins with the first person in his meditations, you know this is a point of self-reflection thinking that we won't begin with an objective picture of the world but what can I know what do I understand and he ended up with a sort of self-reflection um, that the cogito, the I think therefore I am that very much subjective concerns so it's an interesting moment in history as well.
1: James did you want to add something to?
0: I, would, I was just going to say that the idea of what we haven't
3: really talked about the idea of uh, we said, said about commissioning and the people re- who received the picture, but the idea of the viewer and, and how much... There's projection, how much you project onto the picture and how much the viewer makes up the decisions about what they receive. Not necessarily the sitter or the person who's commissioned it, but who,
0: who sees it. Well, particularly when you've got a picture of somebody you know really well, say a spouse or a, a, a child or whatever, that you recognise, because I think it's very difficult to look at a painting of somebody you know, and not think about, you know, minds taken away from the painting to the real person mm. with the, the movement and the, what you know about them, rather than the marks on the... It's a kind of magical transformation where you recognise in that moment the person that you love or the person that you know.
2: Those um, portraits on 3,000-year-old on um, Egyptian mummies, which look, to our eye, very realistic. They're painted in... Um, Sort of wax um, medium, but it looks like oil paint in a way to us. They look very realistic. Um, they can't have been, can they? They can't have been painted because they were painted. They were representing the dead people, and yet they all look like individuals, and they look as though they're done from life.
1: What is that about?
0: Uh, perhaps we should open this always up for questions. Almost <laughs> that's the
1: perfect answer, isn't it? I was going to say about the Bellini that hanging in the National Gallery. It's a bit like altarpieces pieces being. Um, in the National Gallery now, we take them out of the context in which they were first put and we present them as aesthetic objects and we do need to be very mindful when we look how we're looking, we all bring our own baggage, cultural and otherwise. But well,
0: we do that even with Damien Hirst, you know, the Damien Hirst retrospective put that 10,000 years or whatever it was, which was flies that was originally in a particular installation in a particular place and then put it in Tate Modern, has a completely different meaning.